Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. This is where your faith grows every day, and sometimes you don't even realize it. But that's the beauty of doing it every day, is uh, over time, you continue to grow in your faith and understanding of God's Word, and you become more mature in your faith, and that's what I hope you do every day when you show up here at the show. Today, I've got uh, my friend Jim Wallace on. I'm always looking forward to talking to him. He is a, a Dateline featured cold case detective. You probably know that. He's an author of every book I have in my library, which I think uh, you should get as well. He's not only a speaker, but a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, adjunct professor. I could go on and on. Jim, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it today. Yeah, thank you. So I, today I thought we could talk about the importance of answering questions as a believer, how important that is. And I know for a lot of people, it's a little scary, and we live in kind of a getcha gotcha sort of world, and it's sometimes intimidating when you get questions that uh, are hard to answer or people try to sting you with them. No, it's true. But don't you think about something that I think is interesting? That there is a connection between your level of commitment and uh, the tests you are willing to take. What I mean is every commitment comes with tests, and the deeper the commitment, the more significant the tests. You know, if you, you, you have, if you're committed to your spouse, you probably have tests that you are going to have to actually pass. You know, there are certain things that are expected of you, certain things that are, uh, that we, you know, these are the little tests that life gives, uh, gives us in our relationship. If you're going to school and you're getting a degree, you're going to be taking tests. I mean, I, I, I serve at several universities, and can you imagine if I uh, had a class, I just told everybody, you're all going to get an A. You don't need to, to, there's no tests. You won't, we don't even offer any tests. Just show up and you're all going to get an A. Well, there'd be people who at some point would be like, you know, I can skip today because I'm not really going to, I can just, you know, come next week because there's no test. We're all getting an A. It, it turns out that the higher your level of commitment, the more likely you're going to have to uh, pass a test. And this is just the nature of, of, of everything we do. And, and so, for example, we've got uh, Super Bowl coming, right? And you've got, um, you, you know, like, like every year, there's two teams, and I know friends who can, well, I can make a case for which team is going to win. Or why, for example, you're in Minneapolis, or what, you know, why, for example, the Vikings will never be any good, <laughs> whatever it may be, <laughs> which isn't true, I know. But yeah. the point is, we, we're really good at, make, at passing these tests. If we were asked a question about it, we, we were, were prepared, as if we were offering a test. We could actually answer the questions. And what's interesting to me is that we don't often think of the most foundational um, the thing we possess, which is our worldview. It, 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 can we pass a test? Do we even test ourselves? Do, can we pass a test? That's a great in this point. Area? You know, we, we do it in every other area. If you're employed someplace, you're prepared to pass all the tests that are necessary. You're going to become an expert probably in your field so you can stay employed. Mm-hmm. But, but when it comes to Christianity, you know, it used to be in, in the most ancient of times that, that we did have a high bar. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the, by about the third century or so, you might be in a catechism for two or three years before you were even baptized. Um, certainly by the 5th or 6th or 7th century, the end of that process was really intense before you got in the baptismal waters. Um, in other words, we, we had a high bar. Why? Because this is a big commitment. 
and, and we want the entry point to be an entry point that requires us to know enough to pass the test. And, and this is, for example, one of the most ancient documents in all of Christendom is not just the Gospels, but right after the Gospels is the Didache, the, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And it's just another instructional, uh, short instructional manual that has lots of doctrinal truths in it. My point is, is that this has been a, a kind of a, a test-passing worldview from the get-go. What does Jesus say when he leaves? He doesn't say, I want you now to go and uh, make a bunch of converts. No, he says, I want you to go and make disciples, comma, teaching them all that I taught you. So from the very beginning, this commandment of, of you know, the great commandment is a teaching commandment. It's a test-taking commandment. In other words, have enough, know enough to be able to pass the tests. And if you do, if you know enough to pass the test, then you're not afraid of tests. You're not afraid of the questions that are on the test because you've connected the commitment level with the test-taking level, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is true for everything else you're doing. Why is this not the case in Christendom anymore? I mean, right now, it's like if you just show up in class, you're in. Mm-hmm. You're getting the A. You don't even need to know anything, which is why, for the most part, a lot of folks will call themselves Christians and may not even understand what the teaching of Christianity is about the substitutionary atonement or the deity of Christ or certainly the moral teachings of Jesus. Oh, my goodness. And that's one of the first concerns that the, the, the ancient Didache had. It was, it was about the ethical and moral um, consequence of our beliefs. So I do think that that's the, 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 the key, right? The key is where most of the time we're afraid of the questions when it comes to Christianity, because this is like one of those few areas where we say we are committed to something, yet we're not ready to take a test. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, when I uh, think of the word responsibility— I don't know if we ever use that word when it comes to being equipped to share our faith. Do you not have a responsibility to understand the claims of Jesus and to be able to communicate them with some clarity if someone were to ask? Well, well, yeah, of course we, we do. We're supposed to, at First Peter 3, we're supposed mm-hmm. to have a, you know, be, able, be prepared to give a reason for the hope we have. But if you read First John, I mean, I think that's so, it's so condemning. Right? When I read First John, it's like it's convicting because it's like, hey, you say you love me, but are you doing the things that I told you to do? I think a lot of us don't even know what the things are that he told us to do. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I was reading through, my wife and I have been going through um, the Old Testament together, and I don't know, we, like an idiot, we decided to go through First Samuel. Well, if you decide to go through First Samuel, then you're probably going to do Second Samuel, right? Then you want to see how it turns out. So you're going to do, you know, First Kings and then Second Kings, mm-hmm. and then you're, before you know it, you're in First Chronicles. Yeah, you, know, you keep on going, right? And what I noticed in it is that you'll see examples of God ordained kings of either Judah or Israel. Uh, mostly Israel, that just go sideways. They they just they don't they are they sin in the eyes of the Lord. They are evil in the eyes of the Lord, and you you wonder how could this be when God is directly involved in this? Well, you, you kind of discover it when a king in Judah, toward the very end, before the exile to Babylon, it says he discovers um, basically the Old Testament law on some dusty old shelf in the temple, mm-hmm. and he reads it, and he's like, oh my god, like really, like you like. You had not been reading it? Like, like, like this is, we're so used to, to saying, hey, we hear from God through the text of the New Testament and the Old Testament. That's how we return to see what God says about things. But it's folks like this, in the Old Testament even, who, who were not in God's Word. And we're just trusting the prophets would tell them occasionally what, what they're supposed to do. But because they weren't grounded in God's Word, 
they got really off the rails over and over and over again. And it strikes me that that's kind of our problem too, right? Is that if we've got an hour tonight, let's just say that your day is done and you've got a chance to light a fire and kick your feet up on the couch, you know, on the couch, what what are you going to do with that hour? Good chance you're going to do something that is almost like mind numbing, you know, mm-hmm. like so, so recreational that it's, 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 it's probably Netflix or Hulu or something where you're just kind of, you're binge watching something. We we all do it, but a lot of that is our laziness, right? Is that we don't we're not committed to being able to pass the test. Wow, that's convicting. You know, we just well, had for a, me too. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not perfect at it. I mean, I, there's lots of times that my my biggest uh, idol aside, you know, that I let myself slip into is is the whole sports stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a competition on. Like, what are you going to do with it, right? I mean, if they put the 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 Super Bowl at ten o'clock in the morning. How many people do you think would go to church? That's a good point. Right. There's some, some of these teams. I used to be a chaplain and do chaplains, uh, do um, the meetings for the Green Bay Packers before the games. And and I can tell you that, uh, that there's churches up there, probably where you are, too, that, that if there's a game, this game day, you know, you expect half the church to show up and half of them not to. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you almost have to kind of play the game in the service in order to get people to show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that, that becomes one of our distractions, right? And we all, we all have something like that. And that's why there's a challenge. I mean, let's face it, most of us, when we graduate school and we don't have to take tests anymore, we're like relieved. Like, we don't want to go back to that again. But, but again, you already are doing that. There are not written tests, but there are tests in our marriages. There are tests in our relationships with our kids. And there are tests at work. It turns out we have to be prepared to pass the test, I think, in our faith as well. Mm-hmm. I think we like it when we have something hard to do. I, I, I know we complain sometimes about hard things, but hard things are what sort of chisel our character. And God uses hard things to turn us into something that he wants us to be. And I, you know, I'm always convinced that when you do things that are hard, you're going to end up on the other side in a much better place. Oh, you know that's true. I mean, you know if you if you're giving away participation trophies, you're probably not putting that on your shelf so <laughs> anyone can see it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you actually win the tournament, that's going on the shelf. Well, why? Because you know that's a lot harder, and because it's a harder thing to do, um, you you value it more. Um, so yeah, I think that there's actually that's that's one of the things I've been writing about in a new book. You know, just talking about the nature of who we are as humans, and one of those is we were created to work. And work has the most positive. You know, if you're in a productive employment situation, every other aspect of your life, from mental health, physical health, longevity, everything else flourishes because we were designed to work. And when we work productively, we are different kinds of people. So, yeah, those things are hard. And it's the achieving the hard things that makes life. And this is why I think that a soft version of Christianity that just says, just join us. Just join us. And we'll open the book up once in a while on a Sunday. And you'll get, you'll get enough. Um, that is, that's, that's an insufficient view because number one, it leads to all kinds of heresy. And number two, uh, it doesn't produce, um, uh, Christians that are, are kind of like, um, sharp, you know, iron sharpens iron, but if you don't bump into any truth, you don't ever get sharpened. So, so there's the, the problem I think you see in the mm-hmm. church sometimes. But if I keep the bar low, Jim, just to get things started and trying to get you drawn into a church or a Bible study, just by lowering the bar and saying, you know, okay, come on and join us, uh, you might not be representing what you're going to be doing very, very accurately. Well, right. You, you, we all, when we, different churches are, are, are drawing people into in their doors and they're offering different forms of gospel, right? Some of them are, are offering, you know, basically participation trophies, mm-hmm. right? And so, 
So it, it, the problem, of course, is you're drawing them to something, but are you drawing them to the true gospel, right? And so that's the question, is that I'll hear a version of the gospel preached, and I'm going, well, yeah, you've got a lot of people in this room who would affirm that, but is that really the gospel? And now you've got a bunch of people who think it is. So, so I think there's the problem, right, is how do we—it's orthodoxy. How do we make sure that—and this is, this is not easy, because there are lots of places that are not as clear in Scripture— and so I only make, uh, you know, certain those things that are made certain in Scripture. Those are the things that I hold as, you know, necessary. Everything else I hold with an open hand, and I wait for God to kind of sort that out. So there's mm-hmm. lots of, you know, uh, kind of theological principles that if I ask you a question on that, I'm just going to say, well, let me give you a survey of how people have historically responded to that. But I don't think it's necessary for you necessarily to land here or there. You know, like if you talk about end times, almost anyone who holds one particular view of end times thinks of it as an essential. You have to hold this view or you're not really saved. Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is that's one of those things that I would probably not spend a lot of time arguing about because um, I don't think it's an essential. I think it's a secondary issue. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll take a little break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. You can go to coldcasechristianity.com, coldcasechristianity.com. We'll be right back. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Jay Warner Wallace. If you do not own one of his books, I encourage you to do so. You can always check it out at Amazon. Uh, his latest book, Person of Interest, I went through it, and it took me a while to get through it because there are a lot of amazing and beautiful illustrations that you're going to want to spend a little bit of time looking at, all of which were done by Jim, which is amazing. So he, he's uh, an author, an artist, and uh Got a lot of uh, a lot of gifts, so glad to have him on the show. We're talking today about uh, making sure the, we know as believers we've got answers to the questions because we need to be salt and light in a very troubled world. And Jim, I would love you know you, you talked about a clear presentation of the gospel, and I, I know this is something that people, if they were put on the spot and said, "What is a clear presentation of the gospel?" and you only had five minutes to do it, where would you go? Uh, Romans Road. Okay. Uh, so I think that, that, that what we're looking at is um, this idea of, of how it is we're getting saved. What is, what is it we need? What is it we need? Why does anyone need a Savior? Yeah. And I think the Romans road, and it's, I, I wish that when Paul, Paul didn't write Romans to be a gospel track, okay? Mm-hmm. But there is a gospel track in there. And, it's, and, and you sometimes have to see it kind of organized, right? So it starts off, Romans road, as we've memorized it, it starts off with um, the problem. 
the problem that needs to be fixed. So you strive usually in Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That describes your condition, right? That you have all have sinned and come, and come short of the glory of God. None of us is without blame. None of us is as perfect as God is. If, if God is God, the gap between him and us is pretty obvious. The next one is Romans 6.23, and that's basically that the wage of sin, the wages of sin, is death, right? But that's the bad news. So we're all sinners, and that, what, that, what that results in is death. That's the bad news. The good news is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now you've kind of laid out, here's the problem, and here's what the problem actually results in, death. And now the next step, of course, is, well, how do we solve that problem? That's in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Um, so that's that's how you actually solve that problem, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone, Romans 10, the uh, first one was Romans 10, 9. This is now Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now you're starting to see how the problem is solved. And once it is solved, once you know what your problem is, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and the result of that is death. But God's offering you the free gift of salvation if you simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the result of that is justification, that we are now right before God. Therefore, since, this is Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the result of that is in Romans 8.38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if I had to do it quickly, I would just make the case that here's the problem, here's what it results in, here's the solution, here's the outcome of accepting the solution. So those four steps are really a kind of a simple way. And all we're going to do in order to do that is stay in the scriptures mm-hmm. to, to do it. So it's, it's easier. Now, like when, you, when, you're, when I've been in conferences and in, you know, um, um, big meetings with, with high schoolers, you, you, I might say it slightly different. I might contextualize it, but I'm never going to be able to get away from here's the problem. Here's what that causes in your life. Death. Not good. Mm-hmm. And here's the solution. Here's, here's how you accept the solution, and here's what will happen if you do. Mm-hmm. And that's Now, I'm not always somebody who's going to like walk through someone through the, pre, the, the sinner's prayer, and only because you know, I, I have to have enough time to kind of unpack those four steps. And if I have time and I feel like, because I don't want people to think that, yeah, it's a magical prayer, and if I just say amen to it or repeat it back in my, you know, my head, I'm in. Mm-hmm. I want you to think about what those, what's involved in those four steps, you know, what's in, what that really means. And so I think that's, you know, I mean, I've known people who have been, would, would have called themselves Christians and got baptized in high school. And then they will say, yeah, when I was 30, I really became a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like that was when I really, well, why? Well, it's because we often take steps. And we're not even aware what the test is requiring. We're not even aware what the te- what's on the test. And, and then we finally realize it later in life. And we say, yeah, that's really my spiritual birthday right there. Mm-hmm. Jim, there's a, a wave of theologians nowadays that are feeling that approach, which I find extremely biblical and invitational, has, uh, le- has led to many impotent Christians. They use that as an invite. That invite is a pass to get out of hell. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I've always wondered, my, look, I, my, my father is, is aging, and I always think this, yeah, I, it's not my place, though, to know what is in the heart and mind of God. 
when somebody proclaims something on their deathbed, right? So, I mean, look, we don't know how far long before uh, the the sinner on the cross next to Jesus was a believer or knew anything about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Did he accept Jesus as Savior right there? Had he accepted him earlier and now he's just proclaiming it? I don't know. So I think you're right. You have to be—this is why being able to pass the test matters. This is why understanding, like, what does this even mean? Okay, if I'm a Christian now and I'm a Christ follower— a mini Christ, Christian. If that's who I am, what does that mean for me? How do I? Ha- how does that change the way I've been seeing the world? How does that? How do I use that filter to make any future decision? What does that mean in terms of what God is calling me to do? Um, that, that's that's the kind of next level thinking we're looking for, right? And in mm-hmm. any church you go to, I don't care what it is, there's probably that twenty eighty principle, right? Where twenty percent of the people there are just absolutely. Can remember what Jesus said? in his preaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you know, many of you are going to say that you healed in my name and perform miracles in my name, and I'm going to end up saying to you, I never knew you. That, that means that they were identifying themselves as Christ followers, but Jesus is going to say, so that, then right away he says that the gate in is very narrow. Wide is the gate to destruction. And apparently these folks have been calling themselves Christians. He's saying, you're in the wide gate. Now, that's compelling, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I think for me that's a wake-up call, because Jesus is telling you there's going to be lots of folks who call themselves Christians who are, I never knew. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, really—and and you can kind of judge it just as I said it. To know someone, I'd have to know something about you. I have to know you well enough to know something. I know my wife really well. It's because I'm constantly with her. We're constantly talking to each other. We are living our lives together. And because of that, uh, we have a, a sense of familiarity. Like I could almost anticipate what she's going to say about something. And and if you have that kind of relationship with Christ, where you are always in communication with Christ, you, you know what he has said well enough that you can almost anticipate what he would say about something. Well, then I think you're in uh, the kind of relationship that saves. Mm-hmm. I had a friend uh, post a question to me because they're, let's say you're 14 years old and you and you say the sinner's prayer and you receive the promise of eternal destiny, right, with okay. Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. But you really don't lead much of a life. As a matter of fact, it really goes downhill. You almost have this sense of rejection of, of God later in your life, in your 50s and 60s, and you really sort of push God out the door, and then you die. Then the question was, well, where is this man? Did he, did he still get to heaven, or, or is he not in heaven? Well, so it's like, you know, once saved, always saved. Is it, when, is, was he ever saved? That's a good point. Um, that's always the question, right? So yeah. we would say that uh, saving faith endures. And what it, it doesn't mean you won't have a, a season in which you are maybe being rebellious. There's been many times when I find myself doing the things I know are unpleasing to God. And I did those things for years, 35 years before I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. The difference now is when I find myself doing those things, I hate it. Yeah. And that's because the Spirit of God is now residing in me, wrestling with the flesh. You know, they call it the flesh, wrestling with the old version of Jim, mm-hmm. who has developed a bunch of bad habits that need to go. And and it's about how how willing am I to submit? But there was no tug of war before. Before I became a Christian, there was no tug of war. I would celebrate those things. And then, mm-hmm. like, don't why would you even. Like I'm a good guy in most places. I can say I can say this and still be a good guy. I can do this and still be a good guy. It's only now because I am, I'm experiencing this tug of war, and I think that's what happens when people have a season 
of stupid after they become a Christian, <laughs> right? Because they are just struggling. Yeah. But I think what, it's different to be rebellious and say, no, I no longer believe this. Well, then the question is, did you ever really believe it? Yeah. Because it, it seems that, and James says this in his epistle, that basically uh, it's not that you works don't save you, but a saving faith does end up working. Right? Mm, I like that. Producing fruit. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, you've got to get the equation right. You yeah. know, it's, Let's it's, pick it's, this up after the break, Jim. Yep. Is that good? Yeah. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. If you have a question or comment, let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. The importance of answering questions as a believer. We'll be right back with Jim. I'm back with Jay Warner Wallace. Always glad to have him on. And you can go to coldcasechristianity.com. You can find lots of videos and blogs and articles and resources and his books. And I highly, highly recommend you go do that. So, Jim, as we talk about salvation now and we talk about, uh, you know, we're told that people need to believe in their hearts. And I always think, well, what does that mean? And are we are we upfront enough with our gospel presentation that we're helping people understand what it means to truly be saved? Because it seems that there's some question down the road, were they ever saved? Well, are we doing a good job up front of telling them what it's, what's required to truly be saved? And what do you think it means to believe in, in your heart? Okay, so that's two good questions. I think the heart issue is, you know, we don't, it, it, you definitely will see places where your mind uh, the renewing of your mind, to believe in God with all your heart, soul, and mind. There are places where mind is used. Heart is also used, but can you, can you believe something in your heart? Your heart's a muscle that pumps blood. <laughs> so this word is used to, to really express with, with your entire being, with everything that you are, the kind of belief that results in response, the kind of belief that results in transformation, the kind of belief that is like you're not just painted, you're stained. You know, you're, you're all in. Uh, that's what we're talking about. But also, remember, if the door in is that, yes, I've had an experience that um, I identify as um, uh, confirmation or proof that God exists. I'll give you an example of this. I've been talking about this, and so I'll say it with you guys. Um, you know, we had several weeks ago, again, remember, I'm the sports geek, so just remember, I'm watching football, and we had a Monday night football game, and a Buffalo Bill was injured. Uh, uh, Damar Hamill is his name. He was uh, taken to the hospital. He died on the field. They brought him back. His heart stopped. They got him to the hospital. His heart stopped again. They brought him back. And for a week, everyone was concerned that this football player, they canceled the game. Um, they were concerned that this football player was going to die and had died on national TV on Monday Night Football. So the next week, the very first game, he's starting to recover. The Buffalo Bills feel like they can play a game. They're trying to celebrate him. He um, The first play from kickoff, the Buffalo player receives the ball, runs it back for a touchdown. I know. Amazing. Yeah. And everyone on the sidelines was like going crazy. And the quarterback um, of the Buffalo Bills and the press conference afterwards said, yeah, I was running back and forth on the sidelines telling everybody, see, see, there is a God. There is a God. There is a God. And I, he said, I just learned that it has been three years and three months since we as a team have run back a kickoff for a touchdown. 
And what is DeMar Hamill's uh, number? Three. Okay. What is he doing? He's saying that, that this is somehow confirmation that God exists. Now, that's the problem, is that what we typically will say, I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that God exists. Yet those experiences could be interpreted by anyone holding any view, any theistic view, to claim that their God exists as well. Look, there's tons of evidence to, number one, believe that God exists from, like, eight, I've written a book about this, Eight Lines of Evidence in the Universe. I've, you know, there's tons of evidence to believe that, that Christianity is that God. I've written books about that. None of them involve a return for a touchdown, okay? <laughs> because that, to me, is, that's what we're doing. We're saying, hey, uh, if the way in is, I prayed a prayer, and it seems like it got answered, or I've had an experience, not, those are important. Our experiences are important, and they are a form of evidence. But they have to be compared to reality, right? An objective standard, not a subjective experience. And so what we've done is we've said, hey, the way into this club is through objective experience, uh, uh, personal subjective experiences, rather than an objective set of facts about the resurrection, about what happened. And we have been, always have been, a reasonable worldview. We've been an evidential worldview. It always makes me crazy that, that, that no one seems to, to remember this. But, you know, Chris, we are called to a reasonable faith. Read Jude. Read Jude 4. Um, you know, we are called to be not to act like unreasoning animals, he says, but we're actually to know what is true. Um, it's not just there. You see, we're even called to examine our faith. Um, Jesus tells us to do this in the Gospel of Matthew. We see this in Paul's writing. He says, don't quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, holding fast to that which is good. Don't believe in every spirit. He's, uh, John says this in First John, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Paul even says this in Romans. Every man has to be fully convinced by what? By the evidence of all the things we've been talking about, that 500 people appeared, uh, that 500 people saw the, 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 the risen Christ, that he appeared to them at one time, Paul says. Even see when he's writing to Timothy, you, however, he says to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Like, this is a teaching worldview that is designed to pass tests. And if that's not the way in, I think we're taking a step away from kind of this historic view of the Christian worldview. We're so far away from it now, I think, as I'm trying to remind people that we are an evidential faith, that we're called to this evidential faith. Jesus even said this, right? He said, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. This is an evidential. He even spends 40 days with the disciples in Acts 1, giving them many convincing proofs. Look, we're so far afield from that view that we're just taking almost any superstitious thing that happens and we're labeling it. That's from God. We're not even testing it. Now, do I think that, that, that I think God cares about people and football players are people. So I think that God cares about football players. But I'm not sure he's in every game, though, you know, mm -hmm. making sure who wins. Come on. So I think in the end, we have to be more... Um, reasonable than that. We have to be more thoughtful than that. So Jim, when we talk to people about how to be truly saved, and that's a complete and total allegiance to Christ, but are people at the very beginning of their faith journey there? And can you talk them into that at, at ground zero, at stage one? You know, some people go, look at this makes sense. I want to confess my sins and receive Christ as my Savior. And the journey begins. Yeah, it does. 
And I don't think it's, it's something that we, I think that none of that's the stuff that we do. It's all that God does, but he uses us as a vehicle. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to preach the gospel. He could have just had everyone have an innate understanding of the gospel at birth. He could visit everyone in forms of dreams and never have a need, a need for a human agent to, to preach or say anything. But instead, he's responsible for bringing us to faith by waking us up, removing our enmity toward toward uh, him, and then allowing another Christian to actually express the truth to you. And then he's also involved in your development over time. Once you say yes, he's involved. That's your justification. He's also involved in your sanctification. Mm -hmm. You're getting better over time is also a God-ordained and powered. But it, just like the gospel presentation and your justification, it turns out that you that he uses humans like us to help others become more godly. And this is why you want to be in a place. You know, I do a lot of work with Billy Graham Association, uh, just you know, volunteering with them. And what I've noticed is that they don't run, um, you know, um, they don't run uh, events, uh, evangelistic events, without huge participation from local churches that can then take these folks and immediately start to develop them as disciples, right? Because that's what Jesus is asking us to do, is not, not, you know, make converts, but make disciples. And that's, that's, that's something that, not something you can do in a, in a moment. You can make a convert in a moment, mm -hmm. but you can only make a disciple over years of walking with people. And this is why, you know, we always say, well, do I need church in order to be a Christian? Well, yeah, for lots of reasons, aside from the fact that we're told in scripture to not forsake meeting with each other. But, but more importantly, where do you think the sanctification process occurs? You know, I'm watching my own son and daughter-in-law so deeply connected to their church that they're always, every community, every event, they're always together, their, their life group is together, doing, doing life together and, and measuring things off of what they know is true about Scripture. You know, that, that, that's a great way to continue. You know, accountability is important. And, and although we all know that God's watching, you can sometimes forget, or you can sometimes think, well, I don't see him today. But it turns out you sometimes will find yourself being more accountable to other Christians who you are closely connected to within the relationships than you would be to the invisible God that you, you, you are just trying to serve. So I think that's why it's important. Yeah, sanctification does, it's all powered by God, but it does use humans just like the gospel presentation uses humans. Mm -hmm. So... When people say, well, God is the judge, and only God knows, when people have a born-again experience when they were 15, but you don't see a lot of fruit in their life, and you don't really see them go to church or talk about God, and then the question is, were they ever really saved? And then the answer is usually, well, God knows, and he'll be the judge of that. Um, but if we present the gospel, should we be more uh, cognizant of saying, you know, you, you need to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ and give him your full allegiance and walk this out for your entire life um, well, with okay, the hope so, of eternity. Right. So there's two ways of approaching this. I'm, I'm always careful to say, well, you need to. Oh, I get it. Because once we say you need to do this, we're saying, well, to be saved, right, right. <laughs> you need to do this. Instead, what always seems to be more um, helpful is just to remind ourselves, remind each other, remind others of all that God has already done for you. I think that when I see and I know rightly who I am, my fallen nature, who God is, his holy nature, and what God has extended toward me, that anything that looks like good works in my life afterwards is not really an effort to please him. It's like, 
how can I respond any other way? In other words, it's a response of gratitude rather than uh, kind of a moment in which I'm trying to earn something. Does that make sense? So Mm -hmm. I think the more we can focus on our fallen nature relative to God's holiness and what it is that God extends us for nothing when he didn't have to, while we were yet sinners, God, as Jesus died for us, um, that, that just to know that, that means that, hey, how, look, I, I know who I am. Look, I discovered that the most unforgiving people are people who don't think they have anything they need forgiveness for. If you think you don't need forgiveness, you're probably pretty unforgiving of others. Mm-hmm. But the more you realize, man, I've been really, I'm, I'm a, I'm, this guy's just like me. I'm just like that guy. Well, then it's easier to, to be gracious toward others because you know the grace that's been extended to you. So that's why I think the more we focus on the grace that's been extended to us, the more likely we are to see transformation in our own behavior. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, between you and Susie, do you get bad news at this age every week from a friend or a family or someone in your circle of influence? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the it's not just bad news. Yeah. First of all, you know, as you get to this age, your parents are now probably pretty old. Uh, everyone you, that, that you loved as a mentor in your family uh, are passing for one for one. A lot of them are living long lives, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm living a little. I'm also living a longer life. So so eventually you're going to experience stuff that you never experienced in your 30s. You know, I, I think my kids probably think I'm going to be around for a long time because they're in their 30s. But when you get into your 60s, then you're thinking, okay, I'm lucky to have my dad still. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and so, so that's that. Yeah, so that happened. Not only that, though, you know this too. You, you, if you got a lower back pain and you go into the doctor and you're 20, he's going take some Advil. Right. You got lower back pain in your 60s. He's like, I'm going to order a CAT scan. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> it's just an entirely different age-appropriate diagnosis. Yeah. So I, I think that yeah, we all have to get ready for this. And, I, and here's what's good about it is that if the more you are able to uh, wrestle with your own mortality, mm-hmm. I think the more prepared you try to become for, you know, they've done surveys on this and that people who are, who believe in what is called the persistent self um, struggle less uh, with their aging. Because, in other words, that they believe that there is a persistent version of them that will extend beyond the grave. That they and this and really Christianity offers the best version of this because we believe that after you pass through that thing we call mortal death, you are now stepping into eternity with God as the same you you were on this side. If you believe in reincarnation, well, you have persistent, but you don't have the same self. You, you'll exist, but you won't be you. But if you can exist beyond the grave and be you, that certainty of the persistent self leads to all kinds of well-being. And I think as Christians, we ought to be able to embrace that, right? Mm -hmm. As we get older. Yeah. And as I look around some of my uh, friends and people that I know who have been pushing God out of their life for their whole life, as we get older, I start to think this is getting more and more serious because you're running out of time. Yeah. And and this is why, for me, it's not just that. Yeah, they're running out of time. It's that I, I think what happens as you get closer to that finish line is that your motives start to shift. And, you know, that's why if you can say, no, I believe this is true and I'm 30 and I'm not saying this because I want a change in this. I'm not looking for anything out of it. I just think it's true. That that puts you in a better position, I think, to really believe something for the right reasons. If you said, well, yeah, I've, I've just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and I've got a month. Well, I think you can still believe something is true and still become a Christian, of course. But I think there's all kinds of other competing motives that also are in the, in the equation. And wouldn't it be great to make the decision when none of that other, those other competing motion, uh, compete, competing motives are a part of the equation. So that's why I think it's, you know, I hate to see people wait forever to make the decision. 
just because I think it's, it's not as clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know Michael Heiser? I, I don't know him personally. I just yeah. know of him because we have lots of mutual friends. Yeah. And, you know, he's in hospice if he's not died already. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, this is, well, Tim Keller, too, you know, I just was right. diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, what, three years ago? Yeah. And I think we, did we already talked about that, but he did a, a podcast that, that was brilliant in which he said, you know, what's the difference now that you've been diagnosed with a terminal cancer? And he said, well, two things. And number one, focus is really important. I'm not mm-hmm. the kind of person who's focused. I say yes to everything, say yes to everyone. But I realize now with limited time, I cannot be that undisciplined. I have to be more focused. I have to say no to some things. He said, number two is, is, I thought it was fascinating. He says, it's about sanctification. He says, I don't think right now that the kind of person I am, that I am ready to do what God has for me in the next life, that I have to become something better. I have to be more, I just surrender more. I have to, so he's not seeing this. Like sometimes people say, I've got a year to live. Well, I try to do all the things I didn't get to do while I was alive. <laughs> he's taking the view, no, I've got a year to live. I have to get ready. Because I'm about to enter eternity for a purpose. Right. And am I ready to do what God has for me? When I, when I heard that, the first time I heard him say that, I thought, uh, he gets it. He understands that there's, there's life beyond the, the grave. Yeah, powerful. We'll take a break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Learn more about Jim. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm having a wonderful conversation with Jay Warner Wallace. We're talking about how important it is to be equipped as a believer to know how to answer questions and make sure that you have come to saving faith in Christ. That is step one. Uh, one thing I heard Pastor Keller say, uh, Jim, that I thought was interesting, he said, one thing that has dramatically changed between my wife and I is our prayer life has been completely revolutionized. And he said, we could never go back to praying the way we did prior to the cancer diagnosis. Yeah, boy, that's that's a te- that's interesting, right? Because think about what changes. It, why why is it better now? Uh, it's proximity. Right? <laughs> it's, it's because it is. Yeah, it's because yeah. you think, hey, there's a there's, there's a sense of urgency and proximity, and and so that means that when and and, and I'm I'm not I'm sure that his old prayer life is probably like you and I our present prayer life, right? So in other words, uh, it, the struggle is. How do you move from kind of more complacency, almost like a duty to pray, to feeling like, no, this is urgent, I need you to hear me kind of prayers? Um, and that's something that's really on us, because you, know, you could do that even without a cancer diagnosis. But, but isn't it interesting that he would, I think that's probably very true of me, too. There's just times when, you know, there's times when I don't even, like, I don't, this is, this is me, I, I almost am hesitant to ask for anything for myself. Like, it feels almost too... Um, gratuitous, you know, that I'm, that I'm always asking for things for me. So there's some things I just don't even ask for because I feel like, I've, you know, why, you know, if I'm going to pray, let's pray for somebody else. I don't want to. So I don't know if that changed for him too, right? Because you, but if you're a pastor, you're probably doing a lot of prayer for other people. Um, now he's praying for himself. Yeah. It is, 
impressive that he is emerging with such confident, powerful testimony at this stage of his life. And I, I mean, I hope he lives many more years. I, I think he's an amazing mind, but um, I, I love some of his revelation that, that he and his wife are, are just praying like they've never, ever prayed before. And that he said, we'd never go back to our old way of doing it. I hope he writes right. a book about that. Well, and, and look, so here, but here's the other thing too. Now I'll just push back a little bit on this, right? Because I think he's. I mean, I, I absolutely understand the sentiment. Now, here's what I would fear if it was me. If it was me, I'm not. I'm not him. If it was me, I think I might say that. But if somehow the doctors came back and were able to cure this cancer, and now ten years goes by, mm-hmm. uh, well, I question whether I would have the endurance or the the focus to not return. Because I think part of what we do in our prayer lives, we're complacent. Mm-hmm. And that just comes with, you know, um, 10 years is a long time. And if you pray every day for 10 years, how do you, how do you keep the passion? You, you, let's put it this way. Everyone who's listening to us remembers when they first got saved. And when you first got saved, I'm guessing you probably told a lot of people. You were like probably on fire. We see this always in the first couple of years of anyone who's saved. Well, why don't we see that 10 years in? Well, because, you know, it's complacency. It's that this is now uh, not just the new normal. It's just normal. And we're no longer um, seeing it as, you know, if you, let's face it, if you go to, to a restaurant, you find a great restaurant. Like, wow, this is a great restaurant. You know, a year in, you're like, yeah, it's okay. You know, <laughs> it's because you've been eating there every night, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens in our spiritual life sometimes is we just get complacent because, number one, we're not challenging ourselves. And we're not putting ourselves, you know, he, he's facing a challenge. And when you face challenges, you're likely to pray. So a lot of the time what happens is the Christian life is really about church attendance for most of us. That's one of the things we don't do, right? I always talk about how training is just um, teaching with a test at the end. You know, boxers train because they have to get in the ring. First responders train because they're probably going to use that technique tomorrow at work. So when you have to actually do it, what we do is we teach stuff, and then we never provide uh, believers a chance to actually go do it. We assume, yeah, you're going to talk to your neighbor. No, he's not. (laughs) You know, he's going to drive right by his neighbor. We, as a church, have to go do these things as a group to make sure that people actually do them. And if we did that, you know, every 10th meeting, we don't meet. We just go out and serve someplace, and we're going to spend nine weeks preparing for that one week of service. Well, then trust me, you're going to start paying attention during the teaching because you're about to go evangelize people or do whatever you're going to do. And then the the test, that one day you're actually in the the work serving, uh, gives you a focus for all that teaching. So now suddenly teaching becomes training. And that's, that's really what we don't do as a church, right? And so what's happening to him is he feels like he's facing a test. It's coming soon. And he's preparing for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, we, and we aren't because we don't feel like that's a, it's that, it's that imminent. Yeah, it's all about proximity, isn't it? It is. I like, that, I like that word, proximity. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is, I have this thing always called a proximity principle when it comes to work of murders, right? That, that most people do something to put themselves within the proximity of the killer. Let's face it, on the day they were killed by the killer, they were right next to each other. So the <laughs> question is, what did you do to put yourself in proximity? Sometimes you're dating the guy. <laughs> that puts you in proximity. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just happen to live next door to the guy. Well, that puts you in proximity. But what, you probably did something, either knowingly or unknowingly, that put you right next to the guy. And that's a lot of times how we can solve a case is just figuring out this, this proximity principle. That's so interesting. I, I, I would love for you to say a little bit more about that because I, I love this concept as a, as a homicide detective. That's how you did a lot of your uh, investigative work. Well, this is, you know, I, I, I think I told you I'm writing this new book and, and we're just talking about 15 life lessons you learn from working death investigations. So mm-hmm. they're kind of like death lessons, you know, about living. And um, this is one of them. You know, it's, it's about who it is 
sadly, um, you, you hate to think that, well, a victim would do something to put themselves. But, but a lot of times when you'd say, well, that was really an innocent victim. What do you mean by that? There isn't every, every victim. No one should be a victim. Everyone's an innocent victim. But what you mean is sometimes people will put themselves in such constant proximity to bad people that you're not surprised that something eventually bad happens. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people who never, there was a complete you know, drive-by accident. They weren't even in the wrong place at the wrong time. They, they just, they, there's no reason why she, she should have been attacked. There's no reason why she should have been killed. She was never, she didn't, never had any relationship with the killer in any way. That's just like a, like a meteor dropped out of the sky on her. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's when you say, oh, wow, that's, it's because we recognize that a lot of times what gets us in trouble is us associating with the wrong people, you know, making bad choices. Uh, not all the time, but sometimes, right? Yeah. Even if you like pull over and you go to a uh, a gas station that's really, you, you think, oh, this is, looks like a kind of run down, and you go in there and then a robbery occurs and, and you get hurt. Well, you know, you could have driven by that gas station, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But you, you make these it's situational awareness, really, right? Yeah. So if you try to teach that as a principle, uh, you can actually, you know, help people avoid um, stupid. Yeah. Know? I don't know if this is an original point, but a guest of mine a couple of weeks ago said every person, every friend you have, every person that you you know are, are with is a little bit like an elevator. They're either taking you up or taking you down. Yeah, that's right. And this is why, you know, you, we are, I always say it this way, we are, we are contagious creatures, that we, we are magnet, magnetically predisposed to, 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 to seek each other. Uh, and you see people who are like you. Um, and that, that magnetism is important. That's why it, it, I, I always think, you know, I, th- I think Susie is a much more godly person than I am. So, and that's that, that line between fallen me and holy God, Susie's in that gap somewhere. She's, mm-hmm. she's above me and, and below God. But if I am drawn to her because she is closer to God, it brings me closer to God. Yeah. On the other side, if she's on the other side, I'm drawn away from God. So yeah, we are contagious creatures. Mm-hmm. Jim, do you have a working title for this new book yet? Right now, it's called 15 to Life, 15 Principles You Learn uh, Working in Death Investigations. Nice. nice. When do you think it will be finished? Well, I think I'm trying to hit it, get it done written by like June. Okay. And then next year, maybe. Oh, awesome. <laughs> we'll awesome. I look forward to seeing that book, and maybe we can talk about it a little bit in the I'd next couple to. months. Yeah, awesome. Yep, I'd love to. Thank you for spending time. You're always the best. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah. you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Bye. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. If you want to learn more about Jim and his writing and his videos and his books, head over to Cold coldcasechristianity.com that's coldcasechristianity.com we're going to take a break when we come back Vince Miller is going to join me we're going to talk about the words of Jesus which is always one of my favorite segments on Wednesday we'll take a very short break and be right back thanks for listening programming like this is made available through your support Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.